Amen. Well, church, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Thus says the Lord, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So today, church, we see this command not to love. It says there, the first three words, do not love. And this is probably a a different feeling for us As Christians, as we walk with our Lord, we're commanded to love in so many different ways. I mean, we're commanded to love each other. We're commanded to love everyone. We're even commanded to love our enemies. And you might find it ironic because John is often known as the apostle of love. He was one of the three apostles that were the most intimate with our Lord in his ministry on earth. He also writes about love way more than any other biblical writer. But right here, as he's writing, he gives us this command, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. And John is, he's writing this letter to the flock that he's overseeing uh, churches in Ephesus and in Asia, Asia Minor, the, the area that we know as modern-day Turkey. And he's trying to write this letter of 1 John, this epistle, to help the flock there determine what genuine faith looks like. See, they have a lot of questions. They've just had this max, max mass exodus of people leaving the church to follow some other foreign teaching, some other false gospel. And the ones that are remaining there are questioning their own faith. they're, They're looking at all of these people that are walking out of the church and they're saying, you know, I thought that Bob was a genuine believer, but now he's left. How do I know I'm a genuine believer? How do I know that I'm not the next person to walk out the church doors? And so John writes this letter. He intends for it to be read in front of all the congregations there at Ephesus and all around in Asia Minor to help them know that their faith is genuine, to help them discern what genuine faith is. And if you look just real quick at 1 John, starting from the beginning in chapter one, you know you see all these little tests that John's giving those believers so they can know if their faith is genuine. I mean, verses one through four are, do you know the true Christ? And then it moves from there to the next test. Do you confess your, faith, uh, your sins? And that's uh, verse, starting in verses uh, five, chapter one, verse five, and moving through chapter two, verse two. And then the next test is, are you obedient to the word of God? Verses three through six in chapter two. And then in chapter two, uh, verses seven through 11, do you love the brethren? So then we come to where we are in our verse. You know, they see the flock scattering. So they've got all these tests. And, And what we're looking at today in our verses is yet another test. And this test is, do you love the world? Um, look down if you will, at verse 19 in chapter two, just right below where we just read. And you can see John talking about this. He says, they went out from us, 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So this letter, including our section today, church, is not a rebuke. John's not writing it because his people love the world. It's because they don't. It's because they're exercising their faith. What John's doing here today is he's, just, he's guarding, he's overseeing, he's trying to strengthen the flock. He's being a good pastor. And the way that he's doing this in this particular section of the text is telling them, reminding them, if you will, do not love the world. And that's the exact reason that I'm delivering this sermon to you today, TFC. I'm telling you this not because I think there's too much love of the world amongst you. I'm telling you this because you're following Christ. You're fighting every day not to be part of the world, to keep the world out of your life, to glorify God. But this particular subject is something that we can't just look at it and say, well, we're doing good with it, so you know, we're worried about it another day. This is one of those things where you have to keep your foot on the gas, so to speak. Okay, because the second you let your guard down, the world will creep back into your life. The world is opposition to God. It's enmity with God. The values and knowledge of the world are the antithesis of the values and knowledge of God. The two are mutually exclusive. And John's being very clear and straightforward here, okay? He's, he's not mixing words here. You cannot love God and the world. To be obedient to God, you cannot love the world. Love that comes from the world or is otherwise for the world is actually the opposite of what God defines as love. This is love for the world, it dishonors God and seeks to replace him with fake gods, with idols. In other words, there is a type of love that God hates. And so we're seeing the command not to love in our text today. And so I've titled today's message, The Command Not to Love. And we're gonna see this command play out in two parts of our text today. And the first part is the command proclaimed, and we'll see that in verse 2, uh, 15a, verse 15a. And this is where John tells us simply what we should do, or in this case, what we should not do, which is that we should not love the world. And then the second part, we'll see the command explained and this will be in verses 15b, so the second half of verse 15, through, through the rest of our text, through verse 17. And in these verses, John explains to us the reasons why we are not to love the world. And it's very helpful for us to know the reason why God tells us not to love the world. You see, church, it's very difficult for us not to love the world. It's a temptation that's always right there in front of us. And so the explanation of the command is going to help us better understand uh, why God has commanded us not to love the world. And the explanation of the command will involve two parts, okay? So you're going to have two uh, sub subheadings there. It's the origin and the outcome. So make room in your notes for those. And what you'll see today is, though, that the command not to love is actually a call to love God. And that's the positive way of saying, do not love the world. It's that you should love God. So let's begin by looking at the command proclaimed, which is in verse 15a. And this is John telling us what the command is, all right? So this is the precept. This is the expectation, if you will. 
And this is what we're being told to do. It's a proclamation of how we are, be, are to be obedient to God. So, verse 15a. Do not love the world or the things in the world. All right, and notice that John's not putting an exception here. He's, he's just saying it straight out. Do not love the world. And I think that it would be useful for us to understand what he means by the term world. So once we understand what he means by the use of the word world, that really opens up the meaning of the rest of the passage to us, okay? And so in the Greek here, John is, is using the word cosmos, and when he uses that word in his writing, he goes to a lot of different places with it. Um, you know, I've seen in my research there's, he uses it quite um, flexibly to mean up to 10 different meanings. So what we want to understand is what does John mean right here when he says the world? And to do that, uh, I think it's first useful for us to understand what he doesn't mean. Okay, And so one of the things that John does not mean right here when he says the world is nature or the created world, the created order that God made. Okay, So um, the beauty of nature often leads us to reflect on God's glory. I mean, after all, God has created everything, right? All these things that we see, all this beauty that's in this world, it was put there by God. And we can see similar exhortations in Scripture. I mean, I'm thinking about Genesis uh, chapter 1, you know, verse 31, very last verse of the first chapter of Genesis, where God looks on creation, and what does he say? He say, it says, it was very good, right? Or what about Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heart, uh, from its heat, sorry. So many times, I know you're like me, you've seen a beautiful sunset, maybe you were walking on the lakefront with, with your spouse and just saw a beautiful sunset right there, and you stopped and looked and just thought about how great and glorious our God is that he would make this beauty for us to enjoy. And so I don't think that, that John is, is discouraging that right here, okay? He wants you to look on creation and know the glory of God and praise God for it. The next thing that John doesn't mean is he's not talking about all of mankind or all people, all right? And I think that one's a little more obvious to us because we are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? The second great commandment, we're supposed to love others. So for John to come here and say, do not love the world in the context of don't love people, well, that would contradict God's word, right? So that's not what he means. And think about other parts of John's writing. John 3.16, very familiar verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So as we define world, we can look to some of John's writings and, and kind of draw that definition of what he's talking about out. And there's two places that we're gonna look at. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them to you. But the first is the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. It says this, if the world hates you, this is the Lord speaking, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then right here in 1 John chapter 5, Verses four and five. 
it says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? And so I think with these verses, we, we start to develop a sense of what John means by the world. All right, it's, it's the system of the world. It's, it's the way of life, the way of thinking, the worldview, the value system of the world. And this includes things that you see everywhere that maybe you talk about every day, logic, politics, education, music, false religious beliefs, morals, ethics, values. So John is telling us not to love this system, not to love the values of the world, not to love what the world loves. And then he's also including this phrase, things. Well, what things is he talking about? Because the command says, don't love the world or the things in the world, right? So, you know, I don't want to limit what John means there because there's a bunch of things in this world that we're talking about here. But just a few examples to get you thinking. Wealth, fame, status, forms of entertainment, material things. I mean, that's a, that could be a very, very long list. But the world is a system that is ruled and perpetuated by Satan. And that's why you're commanded not to love it. Paul writes about this. I've already read it to you, but I'm gonna read just the first part to you again. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. And listen to what Paul's talking about here. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there you have, there's, there's your definition of the world. It's this evil world system ruled by Satan. And I mean, there's a ton of examples that I could go to but I think what we mainly need is to identify what in front of us, this thing that we're maybe we're interacting with, is it of the world? And so I've made a very easy way for you to figure out, is this idea that I'm faced with or is this knowledge that I'm learning or whatever it is, is it, uh, is it of the world? And it's a real simple question. Is this idea or knowledge that's being presented to me contrary to or a contradiction of what God has said? That's it. Remember what Satan said to Eve in the garden. All right, I'm gonna remind you and we're gonna look at it a little closer later, but he said, he asked Eve, he said, did God actually say And we'll take a look at that dialogue in just a second. But the key here is knowing, and this is for all of you, you must know what God said. You want to know how to glorify God? Know what he said and abide by it. So give you a quick illustration and then we're going to move on. You know, think about like a scientist who maybe is way smarter than you, has multiple degrees, has been studying a scientific field for perhaps longer than you've been alive, and he makes this claim to you that the earth was formed slowly over billions of years as a result of some kind of cosmic accident. And what do you say to him? By no means. God formed the earth and all creation over six days, according to Genesis chapter one, because that's what God said. And I know the intended meaning 
was literal days because of the repetition of the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. The first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. I mean, it's obvious. You, you don't look at that, or I mean, maybe you do. If you do, I want to correct you right now. But when I see there was evening and there was morning, I don't follow that with there was evening and there was morning a couple of billion years. You know, that's, that's preposterous. It's obvious that there's talking about days there. So it's knowledge of what God says helps you discern what is from the world and what is from God. Now we could keep doing these, you know, for a long time, we could go through these examples. But here's the main thing that I wanna ask you right now, church. Do you love the world? That is what you have to ask yourself right now. Do you love the world? Do you prefer man's knowledge over God's wisdom? Do you think man has more sovereignty than God? Do you prefer to listen to music that promotes sin over music that exalts God? Would you rather be sitting right now watching the saints than listening to God's word preached? Don't answer that. But here's the point, y'all. You're either all in on glorifying God or you're all in on idolatry. Remember our Lord's words in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think the application of that verse is applicable here too. Are the words of James, James chapter four, verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't love the world and God. The love of God cannot exist alongside the love of the world. The two are direct opposition to each other. They're mutually exclusive. And the rest of our as the rest of our passage of scripture is going to explain why that is. Okay? So, we're going to move now to verse 15b B through verse uh, 17 and explain the contradiction of loving God and loving the world. So let's take a look now at the command explained in verses 15b through 17. And in this section of the text, we're going to see the reasons why the believer cannot love the world. So let's start by reading it. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, as we look at the explanation of the command not to love the world, we're going to look at it in two parts. First, we're going to look at it. This is where I told you to put two subheadings. We're going to look at the origin of love for the world, and then we're going to look at the outcome of love for the world. So let's start. First, we're going to handle verses 15b through 16. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here John states very plainly, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, they're mutually ex exclusive, but, but John's being straightforward here. He's not, he's not wanting you to guess at what he's saying here, okay? He's, he's just telling you. If you love the world, you don't love the Father. But I think one thing that might be useful for us right now is to define 
What is the love of the Father? So while you're in 1 John there, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and let's take a look at how John defines the love of the Father. And we're going to start in verse 7 and go all the way through 14. So read along with me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Beloved, Jesus is the love of the Father. Christ is the love of the Father. God has shown his love for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we know that he is in us because he has given us his spirit. So if you're hearing my voice right now, and you don't know the love of the Father, it's pretty plain what John's saying here. You don't know Christ. If the love of the world is in you, then the love of the Father is not in you. That's what it says here in verse 15b. And this is where John talks about the origin of love of the world. So this is John's explanation to us about the command not to love the world. We're not to love the world because that love does not come from the Father. It does not originate with him. And notice John takes a moment uh, to explain all that is in the world. Okay, he's actually going to flesh this out for us a little bit so we understand it better. John tells us that everything that is in the world, the sum of everything that is in this world that we're talking about today can be summed up in three things. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. That's it. If you're using an LSB or an NASB, it might say lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes and then the boastful pride of life. But everything in this evil and ungodly system is summed up in these three terms. These are the sum of all of them. So what do they mean, right? That's important. We want to understand what they mean. And simply put, these are three categories or three ways through which temptation leads us to sin. All right? They're the ways that we go from not sinning to sinning. They're how we're enticed to dishonor God. So first we start with desires of the flesh. And here John is, is talking about the desires that are found within us. That is lusts, as I just said the LSB might say, that appeal to us from within. They're ungodly appetites. They're internal desires. They're the lusts that our hearts grab at or gravitate toward those urges that we have. And Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter five, verse 16 through 21. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So now let's talk about desires of the eyes. Now these desires are lusts of the eyes or temptations from the external environment. These are temptations that are perpetuated by the use of our eyes. The eyes are often a key factor in setting off our flesh. When we see something, our flesh begins to burn with desire for whatever that thing is. We might look at something sinful intent, or we might look at something and that triggers a temptation. The path to your heart passes through your eyes. We see the things that are out in the world, and then we want them. And God has plenty to say on this subject. Probably one of the better known examples are found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. You all know this story. This is David and Bathsheba. Let me read it to you real quick, just uh, the first six verses. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one evening when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. He saw. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness, uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David, and we all know the fate of poor Uriah. How did all that start? He saw the temptation entered through his eyes. It led to sexual immorality, adultery, murder, He killed a man. Lastly, in our text today, we have the pride of life. And again, in your NASB or LSB, this is referred to as the boastful pride of life. And I I keep saying that because I think that word boastful helps us to understand where pride is going here. And this is the end that your desires, your lusts, are ultimately trying to achieve. It's the exaltation of self. So notice that in verse 16, this one's grammatically different than the other two. Okay, if they were, if John was listing them equally, he would have said the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the desires of pride. But that's not what he does. He says desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, Pride of life, okay? This one stands alone from the other two in the series there because the chief end of sin is for us to elevate ourselves. That's ultimately what our hearts desire. We think to ourselves, how much would people respect me if I have that? Or how happy would I be if I did this thing? Or how pleasing would it be to me if this happened? This is known, brothers and sisters, as idolatry. If you're willing to sin, 
to get or achieve something, whatever that something is, is an idol to you. You are willing to break God's commands so that you can have that thing. But what we see listed here in verse 16, it's nothing new. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. This is the way we've always been tempted. This is how temptation works within us. Turn with me to Genesis chapter three. Let's see an example. Genesis chapter three, and we're going to look at verses one through 13 in Genesis chapter three. This should be a familiar passage to most of you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. It's pitching to her pride. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruits and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten? of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Did you catch it? Desire of the eyes, desire of the flesh, pride of life. This is Satan's wheelhouse. This is Satan's game. Anytime that he wants you to dishonor God, this is the pattern he's going in. Now, I showed you a, probably a discouraging example. Let's look at an encouraging example. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter four, read along with me. We're going to read verses one through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority 
and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then he took him to the Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Did you see the pattern in both of these illustrations? I mean, Satan does the exact same thing in both of them. Flesh, eyes, pride. But did you notice the stark difference between the way Adam and Eve handled it versus the way Jesus handled it? He, Eve was, she didn't even repeat what God had said correctly. I don't know if you caught that. I didn't, I didn't show you where uh, God originally laid that command out to her. But Jesus answered with a precise, this is what God has said. This is what is written. Dear brothers and sisters, may I humbly suggest to you that you would be like the man in Luke, the second Adam, rather than the man in Genesis, the first Adam. Notice that stark contrast because here's Satan's sleight of hand. So it's all, it's all a trick. He just says, did God actually say? So we have to know as God's people, what did God say? Amen. And notice Jesus didn't even wait for Satan to ask. He just said, this is what God says. So when you're battling temptation, dear brothers and sisters, because we are all going to experience temptation, before you give in to that temptation, might I suggest, ask yourself, what does God say? James chapter one, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is, he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One more for your consideration. Genesis chapter four, verse seven. This is God talking to Cain. When Cain is dealing with the temptation of killing his brother Abel. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, he sets you free from sin. You're under no obligation to sin. You can say no to temptation, and you know when you're being tempted. But here's the main point that John's kind of getting across to us in this. Love of the world is sin. And at this point, I hope you're seeing the problem with love for the world. 
love of the world cannot coexist with the love of God. Why? Because the love of the world does not come from the Father. Love of the world is love for sin. It's a love for all that dishonors God. It's a love for all those things that God has shown us is unloving. All sin is a failure to love Christ, to love God rightly. Did you know that? Every sin ever committed is from the lack of love of Christ. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And brothers and sisters, we've been set free from the bonds of sin and shame by Christ our Lord. We are in the world, yes, but we're not of the world. Share a quote that I heard from Dr. Steve Lawson. He said, our boat is in the water, but water should not be in the boat. This is a system controlled by Satan and its origins not from the Father and therefore it is not love at all. And that brings us to verse 17 in which John explains that we're not to love the world by explaining what its outcome is. So let's look at verse 17. It says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The first thing I want you to notice there is that verb is passing, is passing away is in the present tense. When John wrote this, the world was in the process of passing away. It's buckling underneath the weight of sin. It's going away. And so it was true when John wrote it 2,000 years ago. It's true for us now. It's dying. It's fading away. It's sinking along with all of its desires. All that is in the world, what we just talked about in verse 16, is passing away along with the system that is the world. It's not of God, so it will not last. It's not eternal. It's going to die. And whoever is a part of it, church, will perish with it. So we see this stark contrast between those who belong to the world and those who belong to God. The world and everything in it is passing away, but those who do the will of God will abide forever. One's gonna perish, one's going to last forever. And that's the message that's all over scripture. I mean, that's, that's nothing new that, that John's putting forth to us right here. You know, so... Of course, the question arises for many of us when we, read, um, when we read a verse like that is, well, what's the will of God? And, you know, how do I know what the will of God is? And there's a lot of verses in Scripture that you can go, go to to answer that question, but I think for us, it's best for us to look at John's writing for the answer. And in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 6, verse 29, John writes this, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So what's the will of God? Well, that you would know and believe the gospel and repent of your sins. God's will is that you would be saved. God's will is that you would do his will. God wants you to abide forever. So as a close, I want you to understand what this command really is, church. It's a command to keep God's commandments. It's a command to rid ourselves of idols. Listen to how John ends this very epistle that we're in right now, 1 John. Listen to how he ends it. I'm, I'm reading from 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5, and then I'm going to jump down to 19 through 21. You can turn there with me if you want. 
It says this, starting in verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? It's a belief in Jesus. Jump down to verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Do not love the world. So this is a command to love God. It's a command to glorify God. It's a command to deny yourself. It's a, it's a command not to give the love you have for God to something else. Don't give it to the world. It's a command to rid yourself of all the things that dishonor God. It's a call to be holy as your God is holy. Brothers and sisters, keep on answering that call. Peter says in 1 Peter, verses 13 through 16, therefore, chapter one, verses 13 through 16, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us today, Lord. We pray that you will work in our minds, in our hearts, Lord, to see the ways that we dishonor you, to see the ways that we chase after idols, to see the ways that we run to the world rather than run to you. And Lord, we pray that you will give us the strength to turn away from those desires, Lord, to turn away from those temptations, to turn away from those things that dishonor you, Lord, that we may glorify you. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, we pray that you'll reveal yourselves to them, Lord. We pray that they will see their love for the world and how it dishonors you as our holy, just, and righteous God, and they will turn away from it. Lord, we pray that you would snatch them out of the world and place them in your kingdom. And above all, Lord, that you would be glorified by our very lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.